This is Africa Digest. and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, broadcasting from an African perspective in Johannesburg. We are currently on Channel 802 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. And of course, you're also live streaming us. That's on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Zikona Miso, standing in for Samora today. I am driving the show with Jolani Tulo, Amanda Machaga and Neto Chemane. In our top stories this hour... South Africa's International Relations Deputy Minister Llewellyn Landis assures international election observers that the country does not have any no-go areas. The Norwegian Refugee Council warns that fighting Ebola should not make the world forget that millions of Congolese cannot find enough to eat. And we bring you the latest on Workers' Day, which was observed internationally today. We also have economic news a bit later on and, of course, your sports. But for now, let's check in with our news with Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Zakana. Good afternoon. South Africa's ruling ANC Deputy President David Mabuza has condemned the attempted coup by, op- by Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido. Mabuza was speaking amongst the guests who attended Labour Federation Kasatu's May Day celebrations at Mbombela in the Mpumalanga province. He says as the country is heading towards the polls in a few days to come, any outcome of the elections must be accepted. The government in Venezuela has been elected democratically. And I don't see any government that has been elected through the will of the people being removed undemocratically. That is wrong. That is something that we should not support. Uh, We are going to election now. We are going to vote. And after counting, any party that is going to win must be supported for that duration. Elections will come and go, but we can't trample on democratic uh, principles. Meanwhile, Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro says he has received information of fractures within the Venezuelan army that could lead to the collapse of the socialist government led by Nicolas Maduro. Right-wing Bolsonaro says Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido, who many nations recognize as a legitimate president of the South American nation, had not been defeated after publicly calling on Tuesday for the military to back him and oust Maduro from power. Algeria's army chief of staff says the military will ensure the country does not descend into violence. This has mass protests that prompted President Abdelaziz Bouteflika to quit on in April continue. Bouteflika's exit has not quietened protesters who are now demanding the dismantling of the entire ruling elite. Lieutenant General Ahmed Gaid Salah said the ongoing marches showed there was a consensus on how to get out of the crisis. The army remains the most powerful institution in Algeria. It has so far the most peaceful protests that at times have swelled to hundreds of thousands of people. 
The death toll from Cyclone Kenneth that's battering northern Mozambique has risen to 41. Torrential rain lashed the region on Monday, grounding air flights, destroying crops and turning streets into raging rivers. It follows last month's Cyclone Idai, which killed more than 1,000 people across Mozambique, Zimbabwe and Malawi. Aid agencies and others have blamed climate change for the powerful storms that have hit the, re- the region in a short space of time. And finally, police in India say at least 15 security personnel and their driver have been killed in a blast in the west of Maharashtra. An, improv- an impro- improvised explosive device rather, was triggered targeting a police patrol, the BBC's Divya Arya reports. The commandos were part of a special force called C-60, trained to combat the guerrilla tactics used by Maoist insurgents. More than 20 vehicles were burnt in the same area by Maoists last night. Garcharoli is considered the hotbed of the Maoist insurgency spread across central India. Last year, security forces killed at least 37 Maoists in Garcharoli. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jolani. South Africa's International Relations Deputy Minister Llewellyn Londers has assured international election observers that South Africa does not have any no-go areas. He briefed the SADC observer team yesterday on the country's safety and security. Some members of the SADC election observer team had concerns, though, following media reports of xenophobia in certain communities across the country. Deputy Minister Landers assured the observers that everyone was free to move without fear. He described those incidents as a pure criminal activities that won't have a bearing on the elections. He further committed that the safety and security of everyone residing and visiting South Africa was the responsibility of government. For comment on the situation, Channel Africa spoke to Saima Mabolo, who's the Chief Electoral Officer of the Electoral Commission of South Africa, and Professor Susan Boyson, who's a political analyst. We do need observers uh, because they add an important voice um, to the, uh, you know, assessment of the entirety of, of the process. So uh, we do want them to go um, uh, anywhere without let uh, and, or, or hindrance. And um, from a, uh, a security planning point of view, the net joins is responsible for uh, developing an election security plan, which plan involves the protection of people such as observers, including our own staff, our own materials, and so on. So uh, from where we were sitting, um, there should not be uh, those concerns to the extent that Matt Joins have uh, put in place a, 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 a proper security plan. Yeah. The, those who may be inclined to, um, you know, to be causing uh, these types of um, attacks and so on. We want to call on them and say it is not in the best interest of South Africa to do that. Indeed, uh, it is contrary to the values that uh, are espoused in our constitution. So we ask them, therefore, to respect the constitution and the property and the life of any person in the country, including those who may be foreigners. Mm. Um, Would you say that their concerns are legitimate, though? Look, a concern is a concern. It's, it's, it's not um, 
uh, really for us to uh, to say whether it's legitimate or otherwise. Mm-hmm. The point of the matter, though, is that we've got to put in place uh, plans to ensure that they are assured of their safety. And the night joints have uh, put in place a plan that I believe uh, will secure uh, the lives of every person in the country, their property, as well as the property of the Electoral Commission. I, I'm, mm-hmm. com- I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. Professor Boyson, what are your thoughts? I mean, can such comments possibly not fuel uh, tempers during the run-up to, to these elections? I mean, parties can then say, well, our people weren't, weren't allowed to, to vote in a certain voting station. And, and as we know, SADC did raise a concern of safety uh, before. I mean, does it not have that potential of fueling um, tempers? Yeah, there are so many different types of statements mm-hmm. and sentiments in South Africa that one can argue potentially, yes, South Africa anywhere in the world, any election around the continent. And I have observed elections in very tenuous conditions in, for example, the DRC in Zimbabwe and, and several other places over the years. And I think election observers really have to be encouraged, not just to see the fact that it is highly unlikely that they will be any target because they are not part of any of these internal contests. I doubt very much whether ever at all they will be targeted in any out out cry or any expression of extreme sentiment out there. And it's so important for election observers to do the brave thing and not to see it. Sorry about being harsh on this, mm. but I've been in those places too, not to be seeing this opportunity as to travel around South Africa to be a semi-tourist, mm. very respectfully said. But it's so important that they go to the right places and that any political party or agent of a political party um, who is, is planning to be up to some mischief of cheating here or there, that they can know there is a good chance that observers can pitch at that point. Mm. That is very important, along with the role, of course, that party, political parties' own observers will be playing and, and place the spaces they have for observation uh, at each of the voting stations. But together with international observers, provided international observers really see it as part of their mission to help make elections sound free and fair and independent in the host countries, it plays such a big role. And mm. one can only appeal to the observers to feel safe. I think they have every reason to feel safe wherever in South Africa. Mm. It is not 1994 where there was the low scale, even places high, high level civil war uh, on South on Hutchings, East Rand, or in the Midlands of KwaZulu-Natal. It's not that type of conflict situations that we see in South Africa. And even if they come from African countries that have been targeted in some of the community protests, I think observers are an entirely different category mm-hmm. where we have seen looting of 
so-called foreigner shops, for example. It's about communities, often poor, sometimes poor and criminal, who target, who identify those easy targets there. Mm. And, but it's not in the same category as one has observers. So I really think that's such an important role to play also in this election in South Africa that people can have the assurance mm. that they could just pitch in any corner of the country. Well, that's Professor Susan Boyson, a political analyst, and you also heard from Saima Mabolo, who is the Chief Electoral Officer of the Electoral Commission of South Africa. They were speaking to Ayanda Mkwanazive. Of course, you are tuned in to Africa Digest. My name is Zikona Misson. A few years ago, South Africa's university students protested against plans to hike tuition fees. They instead wanted the government to deliver on its long-promised free education. Education's become a big talking point ahead of this year's elections, especially with young people. So what's changed since then? The BBC's Pumza Fihlani returns to the hotbed of the protest to find out. In 2015 and 2016, I covered the protest at the University of the Witwatersrand here in Johannesburg. Its students were at the forefront of the nationwide demonstrations against fees. It was an incredibly tense time and often ended in clashes between students and the police. We've just been opened fire with sun grenades. They were the largest student protests since the end of apartheid, and to some extent, the students' demands were met. In 2017, former President Jacob Zuma announced that students from families with a combined income of less than $25,000 per year would not pay tuition. It's been two years since the announcement and I'm back at Wits University to meet a group of students who were part of the Fees Must Fall protests. I don't think much has changed in terms of access to education. Students still don't have funding, mostly rejected by NASFAS. Uh, they made appeal and they were still rejected. So the system is failing students. We still have a number of students who are sleeping in libraries right now, still have to find themselves squatting with friends, still have to find themselves just being in an educational system that is just not comfortable. We just want free education, but we have never spoken of the millions of youth that want to access education. Where is the infrastructure for young people to go to school? It's not there. Where is the skills-based development? It's not there. In fact, it's a looting scheme for old people who are dying. Do you understand? Why don't you expand the infrastructure? Education officials insist the subsidy has led to an increase in students from poorer backgrounds accessing higher education. But despite these claims, the subject of free education remains hotly contested here. And it still divides the country's main political parties. The World Bank estimates that the cost will more than double by 2022 to $12 billion per year. The lender warns that this isn't sustainable in the long term, especially if the economy continues to grow at less than 2%. But at Wits University, Vice-Chancellor Adam Habib says access to quality education is the only way to effectively address South Africa's inequality. If you ask me, I think free education works. Because if you're going to be serious about a digital transformation of the global economy, then you actually need skills. 
And actually, we need to ensure that skills are addressed. Most importantly, we need our universities to address inequality. You can't address inequality if you don't deal with the access problem and if you don't deal with the quality problem. The access problem is allow people from poor communities to get access to the top university. But you've got to ensure quality. Because if they get quality, then they get jobs. Then you get social mobility, and then you get to address inequality itself. As South Africa gears up for this year's elections, young people here at Witt University in Johannesburg and all across the country will be looking for policies which promise them a brighter, more equal future and a party that can deliver on them. That reporter there right here on Africa Digest with myself as Zakana Miso. The Independent Electoral Commission of South Africa and the Free State Province says the commission is determined to ensure that all political parties are informed and that and at the same level and equally empowered. The commission's provincial manager, Dumeleng Liba, says the intention is for political parties new and old, as well as the new leadership within the parties to understand the implications of what they've signed and know what's expected of them in line with the laws of the Electoral Commission. Cornelo Lekafula has more. The session was named the Enhancement of the Code of Conduct. Provincial Manager of the IEC in the Free State, Itumelen Liba, says this is to ensure that political parties go out and disseminate the message to their members of what is expected of them. This is to ensure that we all go into this election with exactly the same understanding and appreciation of the process before us so that we are not caught by surprise and no party or stakeholder say uh, they did not know what was involved in the whole electoral process. Also invited to this session were police, the NPA and the electoral court judge with the purpose to outline the operations relating to elections. Free State Provincial Commissioner of Police, Lieutenant General Mwegetisembe. The South African Police Service, working with other law enforcement agencies under the auspices of the province, we are ready to make sure that the elections are safe and fair. Three cases were closed as undetected, meaning that it could be cases where people during the night removed posters and then there's no uh, witness to that effect. Then the other three cases, one is before the courts now, and then two are still under investigation. Provincial Coordinator of Election Protocol, which focuses on election-related cases, Silomatoko, says cases they'll be handling must be closed within three months after the elections. Matoko says in their experience with previous elections, there has not been any full-strength trial cases they have dealt with relates mostly to defacing of posters or removal of posters. They were of such a nature that as NPA we decided to, to set up admission of guilt where the person can pay for the admission of the guilt of whatever he has done other than going to court. And in the past, all those cases, the suspects or the accused opted to pay admission of guilt. Liba says it rests upon their shoulders to educate political parties about their responsibilities. Remember that we have uh, at least 11 new political parties 
this time that have never participated in any election before. And we also had to bring them on, bo- on board. Even with those political parties that have participated uh, in the previous elections, you find new faces that were not there before. So it is incumbent on us to ensure that all political parties are informed. They are all uh, at the same level and equally empowered. Leaders from various political parties had this to say. I'm happy that uh, our fellow who normally cheers us up or posters have heard that it is not good to do so. I, I hope they will refrain from doing that. We are very happy. We are heavily appreciate this thing, uh, these meetings with our IEC. By teaching us most of the, these uh, rules, indicating code of conduct, we are happy with uh, these uh, uh, meetings. We are certain that what is governing the election in our country does empower us a lot. We look forward for the next coming election. I'm Cornelola Khafola in Bloemfontein. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubung, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. And welcome back to Africa Digest with myself, Zikona Miso, standing in for Samora. South Africa's Arts and Culture Minister, Natim Tetwa, has declared Boakup as a heritage site. Tetwa says the former exclusively Malay residential area has been approved by the South African Heritage Agency as a heritage site. The Heritage Resource Agency is the body mandated to protect heritages at a national level. The inclusion of the area in a heritage protection overlay zone was published in the Western Cape Province Gazette on the 12th of April. Tandiswa Mao has the details. Bokap is recognized as the earliest established Muslim community in South Africa. It is also Cape Town's oldest surviving residential neighborhood. In December, Arts and Culture Minister Natim Teto announced that processes were underway to have Bokap declared a national heritage site. This comes after years of complaints about attempts at gentrifying the area. Ntedwa says the department will protect, preserve and protect the history and culture of the people of Bokap. We are against gentrification as the African National Congress-led government. (laughs) And we'll do anything and everything in our power to ensure that we protect Bokap. We protect the soul of the people. Because it's not about the beauty of the place the convenience of the place, it is about the soul in this part of the country. It's a community whose women recently laid down on the road as trucks moved in for the construction of the community despised high-rise buildings. Ntatwa praised the women for their courage. Those old ladies who decided to lie down on the road, 
and said it is not going to happen in our area without us. Nothing about us without us. Let's give them a, a round of applause. The declaration last night follows an intense public participation process. An overwhelming majority approved of the new heritage status. The Bogup Civic and Rate Payers Association has welcomed the declaration. Vice Chairperson Fozia Ahmad says it has been a long struggle. We've been struggling for the last four years to get our HPOZ signed by Patricia Delon. I think it is important for us to understand that if we, the national government didn't come on board, we would still have been fighting. About 20 other heritage sites in the area, including the oldest known Muslim cemetery, the Tana Baru, were granted the heritage status. Bokap, with its unique architectural homes, was declared an exclusive residential area for Cape Muslims under the Group Areas Act of 1950. I'm Tandiswa in Cape Town. The Norwegian Refugee Council warns that fighting Ebola should not make the world forget that millions of Congolese cannot find enough to eat. The NRC is concerned that the international community is sacrificing one crisis for another. Now, according to recent data collected by the UN, several areas in the DRC's upper north Kivu, including areas affected by the Ebola outbreak, are experiencing major spikes in hunger rates. Now, during the first three months of this year, the province experienced between 31 and a 66% increase in hunger among displaced families and communities hosting them. For more on this issue, here's the NLC's Kimberly Bennett. We understand as an agency that Ebola is one of the most grave communicable diseases known to man. However, there are several humanitarian issues that are surround uh, the areas uh, where Ebola has struck in North Kivu and have been there before Ebola, there was an Ebola declared. One of those issues is the situation of hunger, which in North Kivu, uh, 87% of the displaced population is living on just over one meal a day, which is pretty alarming. Uh, North Kivu is a province that has long been used to conflict and displacement. But these last figures that were released by the UN uh, over the course of January, February and March of this year have shown a precipitous drop in uh, food security across the, the, the province. Kimberly, now would you say that we are struggling to see the eradication of Ebola in the DRC because of uh, a neglect in the other humanitarian crisis that we've just spoken about, such as hunger? Well, we can't say for certain that that is the reason why we're struggling to eradicate the disease, but we can say that it is a factor. If you are a family living on less than a meal a day, you're struggling to find food for your children, uh, to feed yourself, you are going to not be as willing to seek treatment for Ebola or capable to seek treatment for Ebola. And this is the major concern. There has been a lot of attention, a lot of money thrown at eradicating the Ebola virus, which is absolutely necessary and deserving. However, We cannot sacrifice one crisis for another. Both crises are equally important and need to be addressed with the maximum amount of effort.
So what is the call to action given the complex situation in the DRC? What's the best way to go about making sure that all issues in the country receive equal attention? Institutional donors must make sure that they are funding the classic humanitarian crisis in North Kivu as well as the rest of the country. As it stands right now, the humanitarian response plan, which is the budget that calculates the amount needed to respond to humanitarian needs in Congo, is only 8% funded, and we are now at the completion of four months into the calendar year. And that is wholly unacceptable. People are in need of things like education for their children who've had to displace. They are in need of food, as I mentioned before, shelter, because many of the people who have displaced are displacing with absolutely nothing, and the homes that they uh, left have burned to the ground, and they're having to stay with host families who are also struggling to provide for themselves. So international donors across Europe, across North America, really need to triple down on their efforts to ensure that all these needs are being addressed adequately so that we do not have a doubling or tripling of needs when the Ebola outbreak comes to an end. And it will at some point. The issue is, is that the other needs will definitely be in place if they go unaddressed. Kimberly, thank you so much for your time. And maybe just to conclude, if you could talk us through the role of the NRC in the DRC. What is your organization doing in the DRC? Uh, The Norwegian Refugee Council has been in DRC for close to 20 years namely in North Kivu. We have programs that range from education in emergencies, shelter, food security, um, information counseling and legal assistance. And we apply these um, capacities to uh, populations in need, namely displaced populations uh, in five areas across the country. That is North Kivu, South Kivu, Tanganyika, and the Kasai region, as well as a a sub-office in Ituri. So we are an emergency humanitarian agency that namely uh, responds to people who are in displacement. That's Kimberly Bennett of the Norwegian Refugee Council. She is on the line there from the Democratic Republic of Congo talking to Jane Rabutada. We're going to a break. When we come back, it will be time for our news headlines. Join world-renowned Harvard economist and corporate strategist Mark Kremer and other exciting speakers in Nairobi, Kenya at the Africa Shared Value Summit from 23 to 24 May 2019. Hear how business thought leaders and changemakers have transformed their organizations through profit with purpose. Book your ticket at africasharedvaluesummit.com today. Channel Africa is a proud media partner of Africa Shared Value Summit and will be broadcasting live from the summit. Make sure you don't miss out on the broadcasts on the 23rd and the 24th of May 2019. Log on to www.channelafrica.co.za or Southern Africa DSTV 802 to listen. Channel Africa from an African perspective. It's time now for our news headlines with Jolane Tulo.
Thank you, Zikona. Making headlines, South Africa's ruling ANC Deputy President David Mabuza has condemned the attempted coup by Venezuela's opposition leader, Juan Guaido. Algeria's Army Chief of Staff says the military will ensure the country doesn't descend into violence. And finally, police in India say at least 15 security personnel and their driver have been killed in a blast in the western state of Maharashtra. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jolani. The number of people who've died in Mozambique due to Cyclone Kenneth has risen to 41, according to the government. Aid agencies say the country needs urgent life-saving relief to deal with the aftermath of the storm, which made landfall in the province of Cabo Delgado, where Kenneth hit last Thursday. The capital of the province is Pemba. The BBC's Lebu Diseko reports from Pemba. Despite what seems like never-ending rain, there are still some people here in Pemba trying to carry on with daily life. Through waist-deep water, we see people trying to get from the centre of their neighbourhood to the main road. What look like small islands peep out of the water, but they are people's homes. Hundreds lived in this area, now much of it is underwater. This neighbourhood is called Joshina Michelle. It's a residential neighbourhood. A lot of it just totally underwater. I mean, it looks like a lake. Really difficult to kind of get around. People here will have spent years and years building homes for their families. And now so much of that has been destroyed. Lots of the people that did live here have been taken to local schools, which have been used as shelters as the authorities just try and keep people safe. We visit a school where many of those from Joshina Michelle were taken. Classrooms serve as a kitchen, a clinic and bedrooms for around a thousand people. Families have to sleep, eat and live with people they may barely know. Manasa Jamal told me she has four children with her. The water got into my house and then the cashew tree fell on it. The house was completely destroyed. The authorities are struggling to help them. There is no water. There has not been firewood until today. We haven't eaten today. Dr. Rogerio Manuel checks babies brought in by anxious-looking parents. The main problems, he says, are respiratory diseases brought on by the floods. We don't have enough medicine, but we have the basics, the essential medicine. If the patient's situation is more serious, then we have to send them to the health center. Next, we visit the center of the government's relief operation, the place where aid is brought in and sent out to those who need it. But with many areas so difficult to reach, making sure it gets to all of those who need it is going to be difficult, and it's likely to take quite some time. That's the BBC's Lebu Diseko. They're reporting from Pemba in Mozambique. You tuned into Africa Digest with myself as a corner, Miso. 
Many countries across the world are today celebrating Workers' Day, referred to as International Workers' Day or Labor Day in some countries, and often referred to as May Day. This is a celebration of laborers and the working classes, which is uh, promoted by the international labor movement, which occurs every year on May the 1st, an ancient European spring festival. The date was chosen by a pan-national organization of socialist and communist political parties to commemorate the Haymarket Affair, which occurred in Chicago on the 4th of May in 1886. The 1904-6th Conference of the Second International called on all social democratic party organizations and trade unions of all countries to demonstrate energetically on the 1st of May for the legal establishment of an eight-hour day for the class demands for the class demands rather of the proletariat and for universal peace labor expert terry bell tells us more subdued celebration yes because we still have reasonably good labor laws we introduced from 1996 although there were some problems with that as well but yes we have made progress but a lot of it has been two steps forward one step back and in some cases particularly in terms of job losses etc it's more steps back also we must never forget that Mayday actually started out as you correctly said the 1886 Haymarket massacre but the point is uh, when I say massacre I mean the people who were subsequently hanged as a result of that was for an eight-hour day we're still struggling to get to an eight-hour day and I mean we, we have come a long way I mean I was looking up my files and I saw a report of a May Day march in Johannesburg in 1931 where an estimated 1,000 black and white workers marched together. And the Rand Daily Mail at the time described as a, it's a wonderful description, as a bedraggled procession in which dirty-looking natives of the lowest class marched shoulder to shoulder with Europeans, many of whom of obvious low mentality. Sure. So we have come a long way yeah. since then. Yeah. Now, let's look at South Africa, Terry. I mean, what are some of the biggest challenges that we're facing on, on this part of the globe? And um, the recent, you know, uh, uh, minimum wage um, uh, talks around, hearts around that, uh, that has been said by government. Is that maybe one of the positive steps um, uh, for workers? But just in general, you know, how are things looking on this end? I don't think a minimum wage is even a step forward. I think it was an inching yeah. towards something. Yeah. Mm. And it applies throughout Africa. We have a major problem in terms of jobs and job losses. And we've not come to terms with a very basic thing of the so-called fourth industrial revolution, which is really a digital revolution, which is actually putting machines into place of workers at a cheaper level than a worker can compete with. And this is happening globally. We have to come to terms with that, and, and we haven't in South Africa, and we haven't over the whole continent as well. And until we do decide how we're going to deal with this, and that is not a matter of present system. We're going to have to change both the political and social system in order to be able to cope with the fact that we now have developed technology which allows us to have machines do the work, one person perhaps supervising it for a 1,000 people or 100 people, and that is a situation which should liberate the working people of the world and the working people of Africa. It's not going to unless we change our political and economic and social system. And what do you make of uh, challenges, particularly in the mining sector? I mean, recently we just uh, saw 1,800 miners trapped underground, um, especially when it comes to safety and, and that of low salaries. 
what's going to happen, you will find there's always a comparison. They say, look, our mine workers are paid very mm-hmm. low wages, mm-hmm. which is true internationally, and they use as a comparison Australia. But if you go to Australia, you will have where we might employ 10,000 miners, they would employ 150 with automated machinery, etc. And that is the way we will be going. There's no way of stopping it because you can't stop technological progress. So what happens to all those miners? This is something we have to deal with. To talk of saying, oh, we'll have low-scale miners, we'll have small enterprises, is not going to work because people cannot produce as cheaply as, for example, we've seen this with, with our garment and textile industries being virtually, well, not quite annihilated, mm, but it's mm, close to it in yeah. South Africa. So what we have to do is we have to look at the reality and say, look, where do we go from here? Are we serving the people which means the overwhelming majority who happen to be working people, whether employed or unemployed, and are we serving them or are we serving a system which has continued to increase the gulf between the rich and the poor, between the very rich and, quite honestly, the very poor. And just before I let you go, Terry, I mean, ideally, how should one observe a day like this? I mean, there are, of course, those of us who are working on Workers' Day. Um, a lot of people just take it, you know, as another holiday. But ideally, uh, should this be a time where people um, almost get their voices heard within the workspace around some of uh, some of the things that they're dissatisfied about? And, of course, those that they are satisfied with. W- what's the ideal um, for a day like this? Well, we're both working, and I think our role (laughs) within the media is to try to convey the best possible information to educate as well as in in an entertaining way, one hopes, at least to make people aware of the celebration of victories that have been gained, of the fact that we do have laws that now protect us to a a fair degree, but that many of them are not properly implemented, so we need to complain about that. And the role I think here is particularly important as we're also on the verge of yet another day, which is on Friday, declared in 1993 by the United Nations as World Press Freedom Day. And the point there is, I mean, you've got a situation where the the Secretary General of the um, United Nations made it perfectly clear when he said, you know, without this, you cannot, without media freedom, you cannot have democracy. He said, no democracy is complete without mm. access to transparent and reliable information. It is a cornerstone for building fair and impartial institutions, holding leaders accountable and speaking truth to power. And that is something mm. that unions, which should be, not always, but should actually be much more democratic mm. than any other organization and that is the message that they should be carrying to one another and to be supporting and saying look we've come a long way since the days when unions were banned etc we now have decent laws but we have a hell of a long way to go that's Terry Bell there speaking to us earlier here on Channel Africa. He's a South African labor expert. Now, with less than a week until all South Africans take to the polls, a concern foremost on the minds of voters is the high unemployment rate, which sits at 27%. Most political parties have made the issue their leading campaign topic, but are people convinced? The BBC's Vumani Mkize has been speaking to voters. So this is the story of my life, Monday to Monday. Open up at 7 every morning and close at 7 in the evenings. After losing his job three years ago, Dennis Zondi fell on hard times. But instead of letting it get him down, he opened a small shop selling cortes, a township takeaway made from a quarter loaf of bread stuffed with deep-fried chips and processed meat. So this is what you've had to do without a job, eh? I mean, like, you've yep. improvised. 
Improvise, yeah. But um, I have been in talks with Coca-Cola, so I'm just waiting for, for them to finalize the deal where they can paint the wall at the front and get my signage at the top. So I thought, uh, to be clever, I wanted to get a solar light. So that, because obviously winter's coming, load shedding is definitely going to come. So when everywhere else is dark, my lights will be shining at the top. There are more than 6 million unemployed people in South Africa. The jobless rate is a staggering 27%. According to the IMF, the economy is only set to grow at 1.2% this year. That's well below the rate needed for sustained job creation. Hi. Gentlemen. Hey, hey. how's it going? Hey, how's it, mate? Nice to meet you. But will next week's election make any difference? I sat down with Dennis and his friends, who are also unemployed, to hear their views. So there's this talk about the state of unemployment then in the country, because you guys, it's, yeah, you, you are three people amongst millions of South Africans who actually don't have jobs, you know? So it's clearly a crisis in South Africa. What do you think needs to be done? I'll start off with you. I don't know if I'm going to vote again, but it seems like each time I vote, I'm just making another person richer. Because they're all like, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? I don't see any changes. Yeah. Especially, I mean, I'm talking as individual. But bearing in mind what you just said, do you realize that if you don't vote, you don't have a right to, to complain in South Africa? It's, you must not complain. It's, if you, if you've not voted, then you can't complain and say it's, it's one tax and is going it's up. It's one and the same thing. Complaining or not complaining, uh, uh, nothing changes. Those who are hoping for change are young people at 54%. South Africa has the highest youth unemployment rate in the world. At the forefront of this battle against unemployment is Harambi. Rob Urquhart, who's an executive, says the NGO helps young people find job opportunities nationwide. One in two young people are unemployed. So an organization like Harambi and other organizations that are working with young people play a very critical role in helping youth not only access those opportunities, but also help them to think about what are the other opportunities outside of the formal sector that they can engage in to help them earn an income and grow their own employability. Almost every election poster around the country highlights the need for jobs. But are these just empty slogans? Are political parties providing tangible solutions to South Africa's massive unemployment problem? For economist Busisiwe Khadebe, sloganeering needs to be coupled with action. People will say different things when it comes to elections, but we want them to do certain things in South Africa. So we need them to sort of go out there and say, this is what we're doing to bring about policy certainty so that people can have businesses in South Africa. This is what we do when it comes to special economic zones. We're telling people that want to employ South Africans that you know what, you can employ South Africans, we'll give you these type of incentives. So we need practical things out there. According to the National Development Plan, 90% of new jobs by 2030 will be created by small businesses. For people like Dennis, that's where the opportunity lies. One day, he hopes to open his own restaurant. Now we're at the Russian, and that's the quarter okay. done. So this is township fast food, hey? Township fast food, And you guy. specialize in it? I'm the specialist. Thank <laughs> you very much, man. Nice one, Dennis. Thank you very much. Hey, Mr. Businessman. <laughs> That was the BBC's Vumanim Kize in uh, South Africa reporting there and bring us now to our economic update with Amanda Machaka.
Thank you, Skona. Good evening. Analysts say rapid economic growth is needed to address South Africa's unemployment crisis. As workers around the world celebrate International Workers' Day, millions of South Africans still remain out of work. The latest data by Statistics South Africa indicates that unemployment currently stands at 27.1%. However, this number goes up to nearly 40% when considering the expanded definition of unemployment, which includes discouraged job seekers. Analysts say for as long as the country's population growth rate continues to surpass the economic growth rate, unemployment will remain high. A lecturer at Vets University, Professor Yanni Russo, explains. Yes, discouraged workers included the unemployment rate is pushing 40%. Uh, again, as I've said, a serious crisis, and the only way to address this crisis is through more rapid economic growth. Our population grow, growth rate is about 1.6% per annum, which means that our economy must grow at at least 1.6% per annum just to keep unemployment stable. If we can manage to get our economy to grow at 4% per annum, we can make inroads into unemployment. South Africa's mobile operator Vodacom has hinted that it could challenge the Competition Commission's ruling on data prices, charging that it was planning to make further submissions to the Anticraft Agency. Vodacom said it would make the submissions within the stipulated June 14 deadline after reviewing the Commission's provisional report. The operator said it had already reduced out-of-bundle prices by up to 70% in addition to complying in full with the end-user and subscriber services charter issued by the Independent Communications Authority of South Africa last year. Last week, the Commission accused Vodacom and MTN, the country's largest mobile operators, of charging higher data costs in South Africa than they did in other territories in which they did business. Rwanda's biggest brewer, Bralirwa, LTD's pre-tax profit, rose 33% to 11.39 million U.S. dollars in 2018, boosted by sales of its premium brand, Mutzig. The rise in sales of premium beer at the beverage company, a subsidiary of Heineken Envy, came as overall sales volumes rose by 14.6% to 1.790 million hectoliters in 2018. Pralira is Rwanda's oldest brewery and has the right to produce beer brands such as Amstel. It also produces branded soft drinks such as Coca-Cola. AB InBev has formally informed its shareholders that it would cut its dividend by 50% this year as it attempts to recover from the loss of more than 40% of its stock in the 2018 financial year. The Belgian brewer, which bought ACB Miller for $886 billion in 2017, said the dividend declared in February would be lower than last year's payout. Last year, the group went through a rough patch after being beleaguered by debt, partly stemming from the SAB Miller acquisition and underperformance, particularly in the underperforming emerging markets of Brazil, Russia and China. And sales of Apple's iPhones fell at their steepest ever rate, according to data for the three months to the end of March. The firm said revenue from the iPhone dropped by 17% compared with the same period a year earlier to $31 billion. However, Apple chief executive Tim Cook said sales were stronger towards the end of March, including in China, where it cut iPhone prices to boost demand. Apple lifted its outlook for the three months to June. That sent shares more than 5 percent higher in after hours trading. 
In the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 357.78 Nigerian Nara, 10.54 Botswana Pula at 100 Kenyan shilling 49 cents, and 12.67 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 393 Brazilian Heal, 64.57 Russian Ruble, 69.87 Indian Rupee, 6.73 Chinese Yuan, and 14.34 South African Rand. The dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 89 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,281, platinum at $886 per ounce, while the price of Brent crude oil is at $72.80 a barrel. That's the latest business news. Time now for our sports update with Neto Chamani. With the latest Channel Africa sports news at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. From the sports desk, a very good evening. Starting off with football news. Premier League manager Jürgen Klopp has warned his players they cannot concentrate only on Lionel Messi when Liverpool face Barcelona in the first leg of their Champions League semi-final tonight. Messi has been arrested for Barca's last two league games and appears more motivated than ever in Europe after pledging to bring that beautiful cup back to Camp Nou at the start of the season. Liverpool hope to have their own striker back in time for the first leg after Roberto Firmino trained after recovering from a muscle strain. Messi is likely to be flanked by two former Liverpool players with Luis Suarez and Felipe Coutinho expected to start in an attacking three. But while Suarez has flourished in Spain, Coutinho has struggled to find his feet since training Barca in January last year. On to Athletics News. Dubbed the People's Race, the 2019 Soweto Marathon was launched at the most visited site in South Africa, Houghton Province, Soweto, in Vilakazi Street yesterday. Set for the 3rd of November 2019, this will be the 26th edition of the iconic marathon, and history will be made this year when a record 40,000 runners pound the streets and back alleys of Soweto to the finish line at Soccer City. And as chairperson of Soweto Marathon, Trust Selokuno states, preparations are off the ground already. We have come to the time whereby the Soweto Marathon 2019 entries are open. And we are urging everyone to register early because uh, this year the numbers are 40,000. As we speak, we are at Vilagazi Street, the toughest uh, uh, part of the race. Offering beautiful views of the iconic township, the marathon attracts runners from around the country, Lesotho, Zimbabwe and Ethiopia, and entries opened earlier today. Last year saw President Cyril Ramaphosa taking part in the race, and Kuno urges the runners to be better trained and hydrated this time around. Please train whilst it's early. Uh, collapsing in a race is very embarrassing. The route passes a number of historic monuments. Uh, like the Villagas Street where Ndate Desmond Tutu resides and uh, the late Ndate Mandela, you know, resides in the uh, precinct of Villagas Street. 
We have Regina Mundi down in Rockville where we had our uh, struggle meetings. We have uh, the Credo Motua uh, Cultural Village, the Morris Isaacson High School, where the March of Class of 76 started, you know, for the freedom that we enjoy today. On to rugby news. The Sharks have been dealt a major injury blow with Springbok Tendaim Dawarira forced to return home from New Zealand due to a knee injury. With the veteran prop unavailable, coach Rob Dupriz has been forced to move Thomas Dutoy to lose head while Kuni Ustazen starts at tight head for the Atlash against the Crusaders this Friday. Elsewhere, Juan Bota returns at lock while scrum half and captain Louis Schroeder also makes a comeback. Duprizi is disappointed to lose the services of Mtawarira. Yeah, un, you know, unfortunately, we've lost uh, Beastie, and he's um, he's gone back to South Africa okay. uh, with a knee injury. So, um, but Johnny Hubert will will just come in on the bench. Uh, so we've made some we've made some changes there. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, the, yeah, there'll be one or two rotational changes. Controversy over rugby superstar Israel Folau's homophobic comments is reportedly threatening to divide Wallabies players ahead of the World Cup with some unwilling to play with the controversial fullback and others feeling their religion is under attack. Rugby Australia wants to sack the devoutly Christian Folau over a social media post that said, Hell awaits gay people and the matter will be heard at a code of conduct hearing on Saturday. But the Australian newspaper reported that if Folau wins the case, saving his multi-year, multi-million dollar contract, a number of wallabies could make themselves unavailable to play with him. It did not say how many were considering a boycott, but pointed to a string of comments critical of Folau by senior players and management. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. This is Africa Digest. Well, that's how we wrap things up for Africa Digest this evening. From myself as Economy Song, my producer Lebu Musweu, my technical producer Didimalo Magao, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, Send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or simply text us. That's at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. And now taking us to the top of the hour is Zahara featuring Robbie Malinga with Mendi Rongo.